You are about to listen to the full interview with Gabriella Angeletti. Sections of it were originally included in our Utah Monolith episode. Gabriella is a staff reporter at the Art Newspaper. She was one of the early journalists to report on the story of the mysterious monolith. She shares with us artists who are potentially responsible for the monolith and its place in the art world. We hope you enjoy. My name is Gabriella Angeletti, and I'm a staff writer for the Art Newspaper, and I'm based in New York. When did you first hear about the monolith, and what sparked your interest about it? Well, I have a personal connection to Utah because I primarily grew up in the Southwest, and I still spend a lot of time in Utah. Um, so I heard about the monolith while I was camped out there in a cabin uh, during the pandemic, and uh, I think it, I just thought it was really interesting and the perfect story to close out, you know, a pretty bleak year. So I heard initially about it um, from a pretty brief local news piece about how the Utah Division of Wildlife discovered this um, structure when they rode past it on a helicopter. And uh, the location was undisclosed at that time, but it was later revealed to be a Needles District in Canyonlands National Park. Um, so that piqued my interest because I uh, go hiking in Canyonlands a lot, and uh, it's a really massive, uh, remote place. Um, and it would be really easy for someone to just leave something there and it go unnoticed for several years, uh, like this did. So I spoke to my editor about it, and um, we were one of the first non local publications to report on it, um, at least uh, one of the first ones to, I think, contextualize it from an art standpoint. And then uh, that same week, things escalated really quickly, and the uh, monolith was just everywhere. Did you ever visit the monolith? No, I never went there myself. Um, it actually was taken down before I ever even had a chance to drive out there. Oh, that's a bummer. Um, very, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, and I think, um, speaking of driving out there, uh, one important thing to know about this story is that it really uh, stemmed from the subreddit that was formed uh, to find the monolith. And there was a, a user called uh, Bearfucker who posted the coordinates of the monolith online. And then that post just prompted thousands of people to go out there and take selfies and, you know, destroy the landscape and piss off all the locals in Moab. So, yeah, so shame on you, bear fucker, for posting the coordinates. Um, <laughs> although, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, I want to believe that there's no way that he could have known, you know, what his actions would lead to and that it would blow up like this. You've kind of gone over the story of how it was found and all of that, but what exactly is the Utah monolith. Could you give us a description of it? Oh, sure. Um, so the Utah monolith was a freestanding um, sheet metal structure that was discovered in November last year. It was around 10 to 12 feet tall, and it was installed on the sandstone floor in a remote cove in uh, Canyonlands. And um, according to Reddit investigators who used Google Earth View, it was installed sometime between August 2015 and October 2016. Do you know how they dated it like that? Um, I guess uh, it just appeared during that time mm, out of nowhere. So it was fairly recently, which is interesting that no one was. It's interesting that, you know, no one was ever able to find out who did it. You said that it's very remote out in that area. Could you tell us more uh, since you've been there? Are, are there other art pieces buried or tucked away? Or is that pretty unusual for that spot? 
Um, no, it's definitely pretty unusual. Uh, Canyonlands is just, you know, a colossal place. It's uh, one of the most beautiful places in the world, but it's actually one of the most remote national parks that there are. Until not too long ago, you know, I think they were only issuing, you have to fact check this, but yeah, they issue a really limited number of um, camping tickets out there, you know, so it's really not, it's for outdoorsy people, it's really not, a, you know, a major national park like a like a more popular national park like arches or something there's no facilities or any artwork there or really anything around it what happened after it blew up it got the attention of everybody coming to it there were people off-roading and leaving trash there and just generally being obnoxious about the monolith on instagram and you know on social media and uh eventually it just got dismantled by a group of these outdoorsy types <laughs> who, you know, as a, as a form of protest against, you know, all the hundreds of cars that were coming to the site and, uh, you know, damaging the landscape. It's interesting uh, to note that uh, the town that leads into Canyonlands, uh, Moab, is, you know, survives on tourism, but it's really been negatively impacted by tourists. Um, there's people causing damage to petroglyphs, you know, that's constantly on the news and just people really being trashy and not really respecting the landscape, which I think is what happened with the monolith. Interesting. So for my piece, I interviewed a photographer who um, who saw the group who took down the monolith. And uh, yeah, he didn't stop them because he, he told me he had this, uh, this overwhelming <laughs> moment of guilt that um, he himself was being out there and, you know, causing this problem. And... Um, didn't fit into his whole philosophy as an outdoor photographer and yeah yeah and at this point nobody had claimed uh, authorship over the monolith correct um no not that i know of um there were a few you know artists who came out and entrepreneurily joked that um and did take credit for it but nothing was ever confirmed so it goes down then Shortly after that, there's more monoliths that pop up, correct? Yeah, so there were, you know, hundreds of other monoliths that popped up all around the world right after that, um, all over Europe. Um, some were found in, you know, really remote fields. Uh, one popped up in, on Fremont Street in Las Vegas. <laughs> it was really um, just all over the place. Um, and we initially did run a few stories following up on some of the monoliths that first appeared, but then, um, you know, we actually had to stop keeping track and the whole thing died out on some. Were these monoliths exact replicas of the original or do you know if they differed in any ways? Um, so it's hard to say because um, the monoliths, it was a pretty uh, rudimentary structure. So it would be really easy to build similar versions of it. Um, with sheet metal or, you know, any other similar material. And you said it kind of fizzled out. Are some of the monoliths still standing or were they all taken down like the original? Yeah, I think most are removed. A lot of them were on public property. Um, you know, a lot of them are just called jokes. So, I mean, the list is really, really extensive. Um, I would be surprised if there are any standing right now. One of the initial jokes, thoughts, was that it could potentially be aliens. What are your thoughts on it straight up being aliens? 
yeah, I mean, I 100% believe that it could have been aliens. I mean, I think, uh, you know, that just added to people's fascination with this. Um, You know, there's something really mysterious about the structure appearing out of nowhere and uh, no one being able to claim it. it. And, um, yeah. I think a lot of people immediately thought of the monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Do you think that comparison had any reason to do with why it went so viral? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, You know, because it does look like those monoliths. And, you know, maybe it was part of a music video or a film shoot. Um, Who knows? I know that there is one theory that Westworld shot out there. Have you heard about anything about that idea? Oh, really? No, I hadn't heard about that. Apparently Westworld was shooting out in that area, and so some people think it could be uh, a leftover prop from that. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah, I hadn't heard that theory, but it could make sense. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess ultimately uh, the monolith was illegal, you know, because it was installed on, on public land. So it's um it's it would be difficult to imagine that you know a major a major film you know would do that. I think that one of the most common artists that have been attached to theories about the monolith is John McCracken. Could you tell us who John McCracken is? Yeah, uh, so John McCracken was a minimalist uh, American artist. Uh, he spent a big part of his life living out in the West and. Um, in the mid-1960s, he started making these uh, freestanding uh, plinth sculptures that uh, sort of resemble the monolith um, structurally, but they don't um, have the same luster as his works. Um, his works were uh, had a really reflective surface. And, um, you know, he made these sculptures from a really finely polished stainless steel. Um, sometimes they were made from wood coated with fiberglass and resin uh, to achieve that really uh, reflective surface. Is there anything really specifically about how it was built that people believe that it is a John McCracken versus aspects of it that would make people believe it isn't a John McCracken? Or anybody who knew him that would help prove one way or another? Definitely. Um, So I spoke with Almin Rec, um, who represented him, uh, who's represented John McCracken since the 1990s. And um, she told me that he, first of all, he would never put bolts on any of his sculptures, um, that the sculpture was very crudely built and um, that actually she didn't even believe that it was art. And, um, <laughs> and um, you know, that McCracken was always very attentive to this reflective element of his work. Um, she said something interesting that uh, he had this very poetic idea that the work would reflect the changes in the world for decades and centuries to come. And so she completely, um, after our first article came out, um, when David Zwerner, who also deals in his work, um, told us that it, you know, maybe that it wasn't. And then he told the New York Times that he was divided on whether it was or wasn't. But he did believe that it was John McCracken's work. Um, Elmin reached out to me, actually, to, you know, completely rolled out that idea. Um, but I can see why the comparison was made and why maybe people believe that it could be because, you know, he worked 
he lived in uh, Santa Fe, Las Vegas, Reno. So he was in that part of the world. And there are records of him installing uh, a similar plinth in the desert in the 1970s, but there's no documentation or photographs of anything ever being installed in Utah. So he was an established artist already at that time. So there would have been some record of a work in Utah if it ever existed. Oh, yeah. And then just another theory was that it could have been, you know, a work by Robert Morris or Richard Serra who were doing similar sculptures. But um, the art world authorities shut down all those theories, too. Why did they shut down those theories? Um, it's just because of the, the way that it was made and uh, because there was no documentation of it. And um, there would definitely be some sort of photograph, some sort of archival material, some sort of writing about it. You know, it seems like what you're saying is a lot of the art world maybe has shunned the piece a little bit. Why do you think that is? Yeah, there definitely is a level of elitism in the art world. So, um, yeah, so I think people are just, you know, quick to shut down, uh, to deem something art or not art. In terms of John McCracken, you said that he was a minimalist artist. What is minimalism when it comes to art? Yeah, um, so uh, minimalism is an art movement that emerged in the 1950s. It's quintessentially American. And um, I would say that minimalism tries to represent an outside reality or, you know, not an aspect of the real world. And it's heavily linked to conceptual art. Um, minimalism tries to represent like a purified and simple form of beauty. And uh, I think there's definitely a cult around the minimalist movement. Um, there's uh, definitely a cult around artists like Donald Judd and Agnes Martin and Dan Slavin and now John McCracken too. <laughs> Do you have any insight on his views on extraterrestrials or other dimensions? Yeah, so uh, another thing that uh, Almin uh, shared with me was that, you know, McCracken said he wanted to make work that looked like it was made by aliens or something that maybe aliens like left behind on Earth. Uh, which is really interesting. Uh, he definitely believed in UFOs. He believed in time travel and the idea of the multiverse. And um, yeah, he even claimed to have traveled to other planets himself and other dimensions and to have spoken to aliens. So um, John McCracken died in 2011, I think, but uh, he would have had a lot of interesting things to say about the monolith. Do you know how he claims to have traveled to uh, all these places? Oh, that would require some reading. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. The next person I wanted to talk to who's mentioned in your article is um, William Fox. Why did people think he was involved with the monolith? Um, so William Fox is um, one of my absolute favorite writers. He's a scholar, um, curator, and he's the director of the Nevada Art Museum's uh, Center for Art and Environment. Uh, which focuses on land art. Uh, and uh, he's written um, a lot about land art and uh, particularly the work of Michael Heiser. I think there was never really any indication that he actually had any involvement with the monolith, but the reason I wanted to speak to him is because he's an expert on land art and um, 
in his book that I really recommend. It's called The Void, The Grid, and The Sign. Um, he shares some really interesting anecdotes about how Michael Heiser's work, City, which is uh, a massive series of complexes in the Nevada desert that um, Heiser's been building since the 1970s, um, how this work actually also attracted a lot of UFO enthusiasts and uh, people who believe that uh, extraterrestrials were working through Michael Heiser to create this sculpture in the desert. Um, and William Fox, he also talks about uh, how it's curious that the desert does seem to allow people to feel closer to the cosmos in the way and um, that things like petroglyphs and uh, different earthworks uh, tends to create a conflation between the ancient and uh, the alien. And it really, the desert can really expand people's imaginations and uh, attracts UFO watchers, definitely. And uh, maybe some people believe it attracts the aliens themselves. There's a lot of land art in Utah itself, from the Spiral Jetty and the Tree of Utah. What makes Utah itself so attractive for artists to use the area for their work? Yeah, Utah is just a really uh, inspiring, beautiful, vast place. It's very alien-like in some places. Um, there's a sort of like Martian landscape in some corners of it. And uh, also the land is cheap, which is why a lot of land artists uh, created work out there and in you know the surrounding area in Nevada. Um, but I, yeah, I think that, you know, Utah and that whole area of the world in general um, is really influential to like some of the most interesting people and eccentrics uh, in history. Everyone from Edward Abbey to Michael Heiser, um, even people like Art Bell, who actually your podcast really reminds me of. <laughs> yeah, it's such a beautiful area. You said you've been there during the pandemic? Yeah, so, I mean, long story short, my family has a cabin out there. And um, when the pandemic hit in New York and at the end of March, I just went out there and stayed out there. I just thought I just didn't know what the city was going to be like. And so I spent a lot of months last year uh, getting real close and personal with Utah in a way I hadn't before. And, um, and that's, uh, it was really interesting to write this story at the end of that year, you know, because I had uh, spent uh, most of the pandemic isolated in this cabin. And then, you know, something from Utah came out of it, which was, uh, it was a strange uh, synchronicity there. <laughs> that's awesome. While you were in Utah, did you have any weird yeah. experiences out there? A lot of our season is ending up very centered around Utah. So... Very interested to hear oh, just like great. what your general thoughts are. Oh man, yeah, you know, I would see, there was one time where I was sitting in the cabin and um, there, you would see just strange lights flying overhead all the time. But, I mean, people say it's from the military planes or, you know, something like that. But Utah is a very, very creepy place. You know, there's a, the, the Mormon aspect of it, which is really interesting. Um, it has a it has a really deep history, and I think that especially if you're you know sitting in a cabin for five months, uh, kind of losing your mind like I did, um, <laughs> um, maybe more like six or seven months, then um, yeah, you're likely to be more perceptive to uh, these strange happenings around you. <laughs> 
bringing it back a little bit, there is somebody who has claimed they are the ones who created the original monolith and several of the copies. That person is Maddie Moe, who founded the art group Most Famous Artist. Could you um, tell us who Maddie Moe is? Yeah, so um, I wasn't actually aware of Maddie Moe, but um, I did my research and yeah, he's a digital artist, a painter, and now is getting into the NFT game, like a lot of people. Um, but yeah, he's really on the periphery of this, uh, of this blue chip art world. And uh, I think he was smart to try to get some type of recognition for it and for taking credit for the monolith. Um, I saw he was even interviewed by Heidi Zuckerman, who's the former director of the Aspen Art Museum. So, um, yeah. So I think it worked out in his favor. <laughs> yeah. Do you think he's responsible for the original piece? Uh, I mean, I think it's more likely that the monolith was made by aliens than it was made by Maddie Mao. <laughs> What do you think would uh, attract a stunt like this to an artist like Maddie Mo? What does he have to gain by it? Um, I guess notoriety, uh, 15 minutes of fame, uh, and money, probably. Uh, attention to his work, definitely. I mean, he's currently charging $45,000 per monolith. And on his site, it says it's sold out. Is there any artistic worth in replicating the monolith and selling it? I mean, no, there's definitely no artistic merit, but I think that as a working artist, if someone is willing to pay you $45,000 for work, then um, God bless. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting what people are actually willing to buy, you know, in a moment of sort of meme frenzy, you know, like the monolith became. So it's kind of, um, I can see someone buying it as sort of an inside joke, uh, something to put in your house to, you know, amuse your friends and whatnot. To give him a little credit, I think there's something Andy Warhol-ish about replicating the monolith that's a good uh, analysis yeah um there's definitely something very andy warhol-ish about it um if andy warhol was alive he would definitely be making monolith silk screens <laughs> do you have one artist out of all of these that you think it could be or do you think it's just gonna remain a mystery unless somebody posts a video of them actually putting up the original yeah, I think it's just going to remain a mystery. Um, you know, there the comparisons to John McCracken or Richard Serra, Donald Judd, etc. You know, I just think these these artists there were all so their work was so well documented, you know, throughout their whole career so that I think it would be really unlikely for something to surface, um, especially from a, a big name artist. Are there any other artists that the monolith reminds you of than somebody we've spoken about um yeah yeah and i mean it definitely does resemble a work by john mccracken um david Zwerner had um a really similar plinth uh installed in his gallery in chelsea i'm not sure if it's still up there but i mean it was it was really really similar and uh he i remember he joked at the time that the portal to the 
Utah monolith was at his Chelsea gallery in the lobby. Why do you think that the monolith became such a viral sensation? Um, you know, I think that we were just still in the thick of the pandemic and it was um it was a great um fun distraction. Um the Reddit buzz around it also propelled things a little bit and you know, I think anything that forces people to think about um aliens or the unknown or you know gives them a sort of some existential questions that i'm sure we all had at the end of last year um would you know really become popular and take off the way it did um but then people it was interesting honestly because people were having really strong reactions to the monolith like it made them curious and it made them angry in a funny way as you know all viral things do and but maybe another aspect that of it um was that it was really it was installed in this beautiful red cove in canyonland so the pictures were really strong you know i can i can definitely see why people went out there in droves and you know wanted to photograph it and be a part of this um it was really a global thing it was we were all experiencing the monolith together after a year of being very divided <laughs> yeah do you think that it coming after a very tense time in the country do you think that that had anything to do with its popularity yeah i mean definitely i think um we were all just really hungry for something that didn't really to coronavirus uh you know, didn't relate to death, uh, didn't relate to, uh, you know, very heavy issues around social justice. Um, this, you know, I think we all kind of needed something to melt our brains a little bit. <laughs> How has the internet, like in general, affected the way that people consume art, maybe even specifically in the pandemic? Social media has really influenced how we engage with art. For example, I know several examples of people who don't work in the art world or have any art background, but have managed to really carve out a space for themselves online, you know, as authorities on art, you know, just by virtue of being an influencer and being mega popular. It's, it's interesting, that can sometimes feel a little bit empty. And uh, the monolith kind of became a unique example of that. You know, if for a moment it captured people's imaginations, uh, you know, people in the art world and people who couldn't care less about art. And then as it sort of became this social media frenzy, it, you know, became less interesting. Social media really has the power to dull an artwork. You see that with Yori Kusama's Infinity Rooms, um, which are essentially uh, selfie chambers. They don't feel like a pure art experience in a way. That's something actually that William Fox mentioned when we spoke uh, that, you know, this monolith started out as a pure gesture by the artist or whoever did it. Then it was discovered and then it just became something that it was never meant to be. Um, and then it wasn't so good anymore. What are your feelings of land art and its impact on the environment? Is it positive to have the land art there or is it negative? I mean, I personally uh, enjoy it, but uh, I have heard arguments against it. Um, I did read an article once that um, 
about Michael Heiser that he was just a jerk moving dirt around in the desert. <laughs> but which was um <laughs> a really interesting take on his work. But um yeah, I mean I think I've had the my most profound art experiences, uh visiting things like double negative in Nevada and uh visiting Spiral Jetty. So yeah, I mean I think uh, all, well all of these are done on private land. So, you know, all the major land artworks are done on private land. So I think that to install something something like the monolith that was just placed in a national park, um, I would definitely take the side of the people who took it down. Let us know who or what you think created the monolith on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Please give us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Visit www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Terrara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Terrara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.